I'm Nicola Kelly, and this is Silenced, a podcast from human rights organisation Article 19. In each episode of this series, we'll hear the stories of journalists and activists around the world whose governments attempt to rein them in and cover up the truth. On the 3rd of April 2016, British-Iranian charity worker Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe travelled to Tehran with her daughter Gabriella to visit family. When she attempted to board the plane back to London, she was arrested and imprisoned in solitary confinement, later accused by the Revolutionary Guard of plotting to overthrow the Iranian government, charges she's always denied. Nearly six years on, her husband Richard, a one-time accountant, finds himself as a professional campaigner. Here he recalls what happened when, without warning, their lives suddenly changed. Nazanin went on holiday for Iranian New Year back in, in 2016 for a two-week holiday to go and visit relatives and enjoy New Year. And, and we stayed in contact a couple of times a day. We'd be speaking as to what happened in the morning and the afternoon and the evening and how things were going. So the last time I spoke to Nazanin before uh, life took a different path would have been the evening before she went to the airport. And we'd had a fairly prosaic conversation around packing the bags and what we thought Gabriel would be like on the flight. And that phone call would have been on the Saturday evening. Uh, she then went early Sunday morning to the airport to catch the flight. And the next I heard was a phone call on Sunday morning, uh, when I was still in bed, actually, saying, listen, she didn't get on the flight, she didn't board it, don't go to the airport to pick her up, and I was due to go down to Gatwick Airport to pick her up. There's been a problem with her passport, and don't worry, just a normal uh, administrative issue, but um, we'll be in touch. So so I, I didn't worry, if I'm honest. I, I turned over and went back to sleep. Woke up a couple of hours later, potted around, and... and Kept in touch with the family throughout the day and, and, you know, over the course of that first day, I began to appreciate more that when they said don't worry, they were worrying um, and they were trying to sort of keep me calm and keep themselves calm. What had happened was she had been arrested at the airport. Uh, taken for questioning. It wasn't made clear what was going on. She, she'd obviously been at the departure gate with Gabriella. Gabriella was given back to her grandparents who were at the airport to see Nathalie off. And they got told, look, just go home and it'll be a, a few hours and, and, you know, this was just a passport problem, we'll sort it out. We didn't hear anything about where she was or who'd got her for a number of days. And the law in Iran is, is like the law in, in the UK. You can be arrested for 24 hours and without being charged for anything. So... My father-in-law, when we had heard no news the following day, uh, went back to the airport to speak to airport security to find out who'd got her. And and at that point, when he came back, not only did he come back empty-handed, having, you know, gone round every office he could find and sat in front of the security office for a couple of hours, but no-one would even tell him who'd got her or why. Um, At that point, he began to worry, and and that came through in in the way they, they explained where things were. Now, in some ways, of course, they had a fairly bewildered small small child, and Gabriel at that stage would have been 21 months. You know, he just wanted her mum back, and, and, and it was quite hard to settle down. Um, at that stage, Peppa Pig was her favourite TV show, and about the only thing you could calm her down would be to put a, a small you know, video of Peppa Pig on and, and then give her something to eat. So, you know, years on, the, the one show that my in-laws can't stand at all now is Peppa Pig, um, just because it brings back the memory of, of all those traumatised times. And the family in Tehran, 
went to sort of reach out to everyone they knew in the regime and those they knew that were connected to the Revolutionary Guard and so on, just to find out what was going on. We as a family didn't have any connections, but, you know, other relatives did or knew or worked in different places because the Revolutionary Guard's a fairly broad kind of institution these days. It's got its own banks and its own shops and all sorts of things. And I think it was on the, the fourth day, so only the fourth day, it felt like an age, that she was allowed to telephone her mum. And she was allowed to telephone her mum. She wasn't allowed to say who'd got her or why they'd got her, just that, or where she was, just that she was helping some people make some inquiries and she was being looked after and she'd been given a kebab for dinner. And everything, it was quite striking that it was that, you know, making clear that her mum knew she was well-fed was the most important thing she wanted to say, but also kind of what she was allowed to say, um, you know, I'm, I'm alive. After the first phone call, she was allowed to call every day. And what was happening was she was being taken and interrogated. And essentially kind of a, a fishing trip on the part of the interrogators to see who she knew in London and what they were doing. It's kind of a sort of a low-level surveillance operation about the Iranian community in, in London. And, you know, did she know any gospel on this person? The things they could then use to blackmail uh, other people. And if she cooperated and answered their questions, at the end of the day, she'd be allowed a phone call. And, and she was at that time being kept in solitary. So it was the only human contact she had would be with interrogator. And then we should be thrown back into a darkened room. And it, it does build up a kind of a, a desperate need that the, you know, that interrogator has complete power and their ability to allow you to make a phone call, just to let your, your mum know you're alive. So she, she, she obviously was just desperate to come back to be with Gabriella, would answer the questions they asked, didn't know anything, so nothing to hide. And at the end of the first week, she was told she was going to be released. And she was allowed to telephone her family and say she was being released and um, was allowed to try and telephone me, but I, I was actually at work, so I missed the call, to say that, you know, I'm coming home now. And what, it was quite strange, because they said, OK, we're going to let you go, but, but in fact, we need to wait for the guy in charge to sign off on it, and he's coming back on Saturday. Uh, the weekend in Iran is, is Thursday and Friday. So it was the Wednesday where she was released, but she wasn't going to be released until the Saturday. So we probably didn't really start to panic until on that Saturday she wasn't released and there was just silence. That's when I... It's funny how long it took. That's when I then started to do something. And we had let the Foreign Office know uh, because her, I told her boss that she wasn't coming into work and he told the Foreign Office that was just the protocol they had. I went to see a, a lawyer, human rights lawyer, that you know, specialised in kidnappings to, to work out what was going on. And his advice was, listen, best not make too much noise at the beginning because you never know what's going on. And if you make a load of noise, then someone gets treated like they're an important person. So it's quite common to actually advise you to keep quiet. It's not unique to the Foreign Office. But they should be able to get access and, and find out where she is. Um, and the most important thing you can do is to find out where she is. Do you, and, and we didn't know where she was. So we then, I spent probably two weeks of talking to different people I could think of that would know anything about this. Probably at the end of the second week, deciding we, we might need to do something in public. And then, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't had any experience in the media. So I found someone that, kind of a friend of a friend who worked at the BBC. And, and it almost like, you know, asked them, what, you know, what do you do? How, how does it work? What, how, how do you become public? And, and I, I remember there being quite a tension between the family there. I remember they were terrified, absolutely terrified. At some point, I decided I think I need to go public, and they were not comfortable at all with that. And my father-in-law, in retrospect, very wisely, but 
at the time it felt a very strange decision. He, he insisted on telling her interrogators that, you know, my son-in-law is about to go public, I, I can't stop him. And he told them three times. And they said, listen, it's her husband, it's his right, it's his decision, he can do what he likes, it's not going to change us. And very useful he'd done that because actually it came up in her trial later on uh, where there was a whole file of press cutting saying, listen, we know she's an important person because... You know, the way the media are covering her story, clearly she's a foreign asset. And her lawyer said, well, listen, you gave permission for her husband to do all that campaigning, so you can't, you can't use that as evidence against her. That's just nonsense. And, and it, took, it took a bit more than a month. I, I decided we'd go public after a month, but actually, you know, having never done it before, I, it takes a bit of time to, to, to write a press release and to organise all those things. And the, the actual mechanics of it, if you've never done it before, A, are slower to do, but also to realise what you need to do took some time. So we did a petition on a website called change.org. We did a, a press release. Um, we did a Facebook page, uh, a Twitter account. Things, yeah, I'd, I'd never been on Facebook. I'd never had a Twitter. And all these things that, you know, I was very clumsy and middle-aged about. And, yeah, the only reason we did all that is because other families had done it. So we thought, OK, that's what you're supposed to do. And I told the Foreign Office about two days before they were going public. And they tried to stop me. Um, we're not... No, in fairness, they didn't say don't do it. They just said we don't advise um, and tried to sort of let me know how intimidating it would be to have all these camps of tabloid journalists outside our door and, you know, we're sure we were ready for that and because if, you know, and they could protect us. If, you know, I mean, just ways of trying to mess with our heads um, and, and keep us subdued. The British-Iranian aid worker Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. There's an emotional tidal wave that hits where you see your family photos on you know, BBC News or I mean, front page of headlines and newspapers at points. And, you know, I found then, and it's still true now, that I can't emotionally cope with watching myself do interviews or, or even reading the bigger feature articles. I like someone to know what's, you know, just in case we've said something wrong, that it gets picked up. But the experience of doing an interview, you know, you go and do BBC Breakfast, you're sitting on a sofa, there's two people there, it's in a room. Well, I'm very pleased that Richard and Gabriella join us now. Lovely to see you. Of course, it's not. It's broadcast much more beyond that. It's, it's, it's much bigger. And I, one of the things I remember being quite hard is when we started the petition on change.org at the beginning, you know, two of us had signed it, then it became five. At some point, it became, I think after, after 20, it becomes public. Um, it, it went public. But after that, the petition was just something that we would watch this, this it does this count, and we would just watch this count go up. And, and there's a lovely kind of sense of feeling supported uh, when you get that count going up. It was only when I started doing updates on the petition that I realised it was sending out emails to everyone that signed the petition. So suddenly, you know, within 10 days, I was sending out an email to half a million people. Um, well, there aren't many times in my life, there's never been any time in my life before where that's happened. And you, you suddenly realise the shift in scale from what is just, a, you know, a, a chat and a complaint to suddenly becoming a, at some level a public figure. I mean, the first effect of that campaigning was that we got a family visit. So the first time Nazanin was visited by Gabriella and by her mum and dad um, was after we'd gone public. You know, and, and they'd, they'd been sort of talking about it before, but it definitely made it happen because, you know, suddenly there were then, there was a scrutiny around how they were treating her. And so Nazanin got the first time of it, it was 38 days after she'd been taken. And at that stage, she was so weak, she, she couldn't stand up off the chair and she had to have Gabriella lifted onto her. And when Gabriella was put on her, she just didn't say anything for about 15 minutes. Just looked at her mum, they would look across at her grandmother, then look back at her mum and would just touch her face just to you know, check his mummy real. 
you know, and then obviously they had, a, I mean, a, for them, lovely hour together, but then when Gabriel was taken away again, um, I mean, raging, raging tears and, and, and you know, protest that, that, you know, she was being taken away from her mum. And I think everyone was really quite shaken as to how weak she'd become. And essentially she'd been, you know, locked up in a room and, and, and kind of lots of things had atrophied and, and she'd just, you know, stopped eating and, and gone really low. And, and I think... There is a kind of a dynamic in our story where it took me a long time. I always to think of it as happening to someone else or that, you know, it, you know, because we did still have a normal life. We will, I hope, have a normal life again. And then our parts of our story are just crazy. And there's a way in which going on the telly or talking on this podcast is, is about trying to get people to understand how crazy it is. You know, the, the Iranian prison system, particularly the parts controlled by the Revolutionary Guard, is quite sophisticated in how brutal it is. And it doesn't leave many physical scars. I mean, it does to some people, but it's very developed in, in how it leaves psychological scars and the ways in which it will twist and, and play people. So, you know, you know, as in the early day, early months, not just days, regularly would, you know, they would try and isolate her physically, but also emotionally, like, you know, your husband's abandoned you, we've got pictures of him with other girls, um, your family don't care. You know, and, and then they'd get her to talk about, you know, her daughter. You know, find what the points of sort of sensitivity and vulnerability are. And then, you know, the whole thing where they played a second trick on her where they were going to release her um, in time for, her, for Gabriella's birthday. Um, and they didn't, they just moved to somewhere else. But let her tell her family, tell all of her cellmates that she was leaving. They moved her out of that prison and then, yeah, just disappeared her for two weeks just to show they could. It's a really quite sophisticated cruelty. And done to to make someone feel really small and alone and guilty. Yeah, it was it was a a very tough time those first eight and a half months. Lots of scrambling around trying to work out what's going on. Battles with the government where they were telling us to be quiet. Um, out of our depth, right? And you know, my background is I'm an accountant. Um, you know it. it <laughs> Gives me certain experiences of going to places I don't really understand what's going on and having to, to pretend I do, but but nothing like this. The big impact for our case from the government was the intervention of, of Boris Johnson when he was Foreign Secretary in the autumn of 2017. So we were just about to come up for parole or be eligible for parole, not say we would have got it. Um, he got asked a question in Parliament at the Foreign Affairs Select Committee about Nazanin's case and answered it in ways that were significant. So he criticised the way and he said, listen, as far as I know... She, she was simply teaching people journalism, as I understand it, or, uh, the, the very limit. And... I must say, I find it deeply depressing. I think it's uh, totally contrary to uh, the interests of, of the Iranian people for this to continue. That, in fairness, was the first time anyone had ever criticised the Iranian authorities for Nazanin's treatment. And, you know, we never got anything off anyone before. We never got anywhere near to meet the Foreign Secretary. None of the junior ministers would criticise. And, and, and it was key because the Iranian regime used it to justify a second court case against Nazanin. And it became a big deal, partly because there was a big Iranian propaganda drive 
around it, using his words, and partly because he's not he's not a natural one for apologising or correcting. So he stood his ground, and and there was sort of brought into Parliament to justify. You know, it, and it was a kind of an apology was, well, if you know, if you, I'm sorry if anyone took offence, I'm sorry if anyone was upset, um, but not these words were inaccurate. And I acknowledge that the words I used were open to being misinterpreted, and I apologise to Mrs Zagari Ratcliffe and her family if I have inadvertently caused them any further anguish. And eventually said, listen, yes, he did acknowledge that she had just been there on holiday, but also that there had been no consequences for his action, which was patently untrue, because it was and still is used against her by Iranian officials that, yeah, they know it's cynical, but they still do it. And it became a really big thing politically for about two weeks, partly because a couple of other ministers had just had to resign for their conduct the previous week. So there was a real sense that the government was beginning to fall apart at that point. And I remember we we went from being, you know, a story that occasionally be in the middle pages or the local news to suddenly being on the front pages and it was the first time we had people camped outside our door. I think it would have been the Sunday at the end of the first week where Michael Gove would have gone on the Andrew Marr show. Miss Zahari Radcliffe, yes. in a terrible condition in Iranian prison. What was she doing when she went to Iran? Uh, I don't know. Um, one of the things and I... again said he didn't know what Asneem was doing and if her husband said that she was on their holiday that was good enough for him but he didn't know. Like really kind of muddying it. You know, when they did know, I mean, it was just nonsense, really self-serving stuff. And then, it, you know, we had people camping outside for an outdoor step for reactions. Those comments were played out on Iranian TV. Because we'd become a political football, um, people were fighting for their political lives, and it was all about the cabinet ministers. It wasn't about Benazneen at all. But because it became so high-profile, I remember the first time... I, I mean, it finally we got to meet the foreign secretary, the first time that happened... We did a press conference after meeting, which was covered live on Sky Television, and they didn't show Prime Minister's questions. They showed our press conference live. It was just extraordinary that we'd got to that level of... I mean, we never were before, we never were again afterwards, but at that point, we were we were such a big show. And I remember it being completely out of my depth as to how you handle this. You know, it was nice... It was nice to get the attention. It was nice to get the political pressure. But also, we weren't actually trying to have a fight with the ministers. We were trying to get them to get Nasty home. And, and to learn to chart our way through that. And and once you have the Foreign Secretary of the Day undertaking that he's going to try and sort it, and he's going to work with the Chancellor to sort it, the expectation was that it would have been sorted. We went to Tehran, met with President Rouhani, met with the President. The debt was put into the budget that day that the Iranian President presented to Parliament that day. So all kind of tacitly understood it was going to be sorted, and then it wasn't. We got various messages saying, OK, please tell the British government that Nathanin is ready to be picked up. And then later on clarified, OK, you know, if this isn't sorted, then, you know, you're not coming out. So it all got quite dark. And, and then he stepped away from the Foreign Secretary. And we had to pick it up again with Jeremy Hunt. I mean, probably for me, from that point onwards, you know, we knew about it was about the debt before, but there, there was kind of a process to sort of really really have that sink in and understand that it's just about... And it, once it became so clear, it was a long battle as to what we could get the government to do about it. Because, you know, it's their fight, it's not our fight. We shouldn't be involved in it. And actually getting the government to take responsibility for protecting Nazanin, which was, you know, getting them to acknowledge what she'd gone through, that it, you know, treatment matters to torture and so on. And also getting... Well, in the end, we got something called diplomatic protection, which is where the government says, listen, anything that happens to Nazanin we will treat as a dispute between us and Iran. Quite a significant thing legally 
took a long battle to get it, and then still we have battles with government to do anything. Probably having got that threshold, it did mean that we were then a case that the government had to solve. And I think the strategy prior to Boris's intervention then had essentially been to wait the Iranians out and to wait for them to realise that they're not getting their money this way and just let her go. Dear Boris Johnson, please can you bring my mummy home for Christmas? She has been good. In fairness to Jeremy Hunt, well, first to Boris and then to Jeremy Hunt and then to Dominic Raab and um, also to Liz Truss now, um, we've had a change of Foreign Secretary about every year. They've all, in different ways, been willing to say this is a priority and we're trying to solve. Um, and they've all done different things. At the moment, and it would have been true under Dominic Raab as well, there's been a long, long set of international negotiations with Iran, um, primarily around the nuclear deal and reviving that, but also in parallel around doing a prisoner swap and different pots of money that are currently under sanctions, Iranian money under sanctions, being allowed to go back to Iran. They didn't need to tie those pots of money in Nazneen's case to the nuclear deal, but it's probably easier in diplomatic terms to have it as a big sort of grand bargain rather than have it too clearly a transaction, which I think is what the government was always quite wary of, of acknowledging. The husband of the Iranian detainee Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe is into his 18th day of a hunger strike outside the Foreign Office. Richard Radcliffe wants to... I mean, I, with the hunger strike, and, I, and I, I went and camped in front of the Foreign Office for three weeks in the autumn, which was quite a bit colder than, than the previous time I'd been out on hunger strike. And it was one of those experiences where quite quiet for the first couple of days and then increasingly more and more people coming down from all walks of life. Yes, yeah, so we had lots of people from the House of Lords and bishops and the high and mighty and city lawyers and so on. But lots of, of people that had come quite a long way because they'd seen our story on the telly or they'd been following it online or, you know, talked about it in their local church or, you know, been dragged along as students or school kids by an enthusiastic teacher. Um, and lovely. I met so many people coming and, and showing their care and their support in a way that, yeah, I think the government really noticed. You know, until that point, I don't think people have necessarily understood about the debt and understood about actually, you know, the government is also got a role in this. Yes, it, the Iranians are being outrageous, but they've got a point. It's their money. They'd like it back. They're bad guys. Don't be surprised when bad guys do bad stuff. And the government, its first job is to protect people. And it's failing in that. There's always been a subtext of what was Nazanin really doing? Did Boris really reveal something that kind of washed away at that point, became much more about, listen, the government just needs to sort this and, and get out and stop playing games. And, and yeah, I mean, it, we've still got... Someone sent us a big fruitcake after the hunger strike. I mean, we couldn't eat it during the hunger strike, but lots of... I mean, lots of people did try and bring food, in fairness. I mean, Gabriella did very well out of chocolates and things that she had to eat sneakily. But, but lots and lots of different ways in which people showed their care that, you know, has been such a part of our experience of campaigning. What actually a kind world it is, alongside the cruelty and... Most people are kind and most people can see injustice and it's something I really appreciate what people have done for us. And, and Nazanin does as well, far away in seeing the care and, and it was like a debate in Parliament just afterwards. When do you miss your mum the most? At night. At night? Why? Because I cry about it. Oh, why do you cry? Because I want her home. 
one of the MPs afterwards said, listen, Nazim, if you're watching this, please let me know we will keep going until you're home. And, and Nazim was watching it on, on BBC Parliament. So things like that, really, really powerful. Where we are now, it's quite hard to say, actually. I mean, we, we have quite regular meetings of the Foreign Office at the moment because those nuclear negotiations, you know, which were happening quite intensively last spring and the summer, then fell apart, got really quite bad-tempered in the autumn and then picked up again and have made very good progress, it feels, the last six weeks, but haven't quite got there. And it feels like it's almost there on the Iranian side and it's almost there on the American side, but it's not quite clear if you would let. So, you know, it could be that within days it is all sorted and then we'd be quite hopeful that things are going to work out and should be coming home soon. It could also be that in days it becomes clear it's not sorted, in which case I think the opposite happens and we have to worry about things getting, you know, deteriorating very quickly. So we almost have two slightly schizophrenic conversations with the government at present. One where we're it's not quite saying, well, what are the arrangements for when she comes home, but, but kind of beginning to try and explore, is it really, you know, do you have a timeline? We're, we're, you know, hopeful conversations. And the other side is to say, listen, well, if this goes wrong... How are you going to stop Nazneen from becoming a human shield? What are you going to do to keep her from being, you know, thrown back into prison, which is, is what they're threatening, um, or worse? You know, I think one way or the other we'll be meeting the Prime Minister quite soon, but it could be, you know, to have a sort of a garden party reception, thank you for getting us home, and it could be to have a serious conversation about you need to make some, you know, robust decisions now before this gets a lot worse and not just for us. And how is she now? I think, yeah, up and down is the truth. It probably depends on which day. Um, you know, we're on tenterhooks as to whether this is going to be over soon. She's trying to sort of keep hopeful and, you know, why not? I find my job is to to sort of... And we don't need to worry about the good stuff so much. It's it's where things aren't going to work. Um, and, and to learn to read when the government's just giving us false platitudes or hopeful noises, be ready to, to push them. So in some ways now my job is, you know, after this length of time, and we're now, what, six years, it's keeping home alive and keeping a normal home to come back to. And, and, you know, six years is a long time to be a campaigner, just as it's a long time to be stuck in prison or house arrest. She does not want to come back to a professional campaigner. She wants to come back to the life that she left behind. Now, in some ways, you can't, because that one and three quarters year old is now seven and a half, and equally, we've all aged a bit, and, and life's moved on, and the world is in a very different place from how it was back then. We, we all want to be normal. So she'll be ringing up, I mean, she can speak to the British ambassador now, ring up every so often to find out what's going on and where things are, trying to get updates from me and, and, and trying to gauge, you know, should she pack a bag soon or, well, which bag should she pack soon, I suppose? It's, is it a bag to come home or a bag to go back to prison? Right now, I think it could go either side of, of the knife edge. Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe heading to, a, sorry, this is a moving moment because these are people who have been detained for some time. So we're hearing that Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and Anusha Ashuri are heading to uh, the airport in Tehran to leave the country. At RAF Bryce Norton, where they landed, an emotional reunion with their families. Nazanin with her husband Richard and cradling her daughter Gabriella. Do I smell nice? I haven't had the <laughs> Together again, and this time for good.
Thanks for listening to Silenced. If you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about what Article 19 does on Twitter, where we're at Article19.org. In the next episode, we'll hear from Matthew Caruana Galizia, investigative journalist and son of the late Daphne Caruana Galizia. We hope you'll join us then.